morning, everyone. Good to be with you on this uh, Palm Sunday. We're entering Holy Week, as you may know. This is the high point of how the church keeps time. So here we are on Palm Sunday. We're moving through this week, Monday, Thursday. Good Friday, we'll have a gathering here, uh, Good Friday morning with the other downtown Eastside churches. It's always a, it's always a really great uh, gathering, and it's, a, it's a, also a great reminder for us as a community to remember that we're just one small part of the church, not only in the city, but this neighborhood. Uh, so I encourage you to come out on uh, Good Friday morning. The Reverend Nelson J. Boschman will be giving the homily uh, that morning. And then Easter... Uh, we'll, we'll gather here again to celebrate uh, the resurrection. Uh, I've been getting into cartoons lately. Here's a cartoon. Um, so, ladies, thanks for being the first to witness and report the resurrection, and we'll take it from here. <laughs> so, really happy to announce this uh, Easter morning. Uh, our own Stephanie Radcliffe will be preaching. Yeah. And we'll be... Uh, bringing and announcing uh, the good news of the resurrection. So pray for, pray for Steph if you think of her this week. Easter, is, it's, a hard, it's a great Sunday, but it's a hard Sunday to preach. Uh, and so when you think of Easter, pray for, pray for Steph. So we are entering Holy Week. We're entering what's known as the Paschal Mystery. And we'll talk a bit about that uh, this morning. Now, is Nelson here? Let's, yeah. Can we get a few helpers? Now, the kids are involved, but as adults... If you think you've outgrown coloring sheets, we're gonna, we've got some coloring sheets, but only, I'm only giving you a pencil. So see what you can do with that, okay? Do some creative shading, I guess. Um, maybe, we could, could we get a few more? Denver and Katie, could you help out pass some of these sheets? Chelsea's coming with, uh, that's great, fistfuls of, of golf pencils. Um, so you'll get one of these uh, pieces of paper and uh, you can do whatever you'd like with it. We're going to be talking about the Paschal Mystery. We're going to be talking about the nature of seeds. We're going to be talking about death and resurrection as we come to the cross. And later in the gathering, if you've been around, you know we do prayers of the people. Where we'll write out a prayer, and then we'll gather them, and then we read them out loud. So this morning's prayers of the people, you're invited to write a prayer or a word inside that seed. We'll gather them. The kids are going to do this as well upstairs, and then they'll bring down their seeds, and we're going to put them up on the wall as just a, a little bit of an installation up on the wall, okay? So you can write whatever you want. You can keep it. If you'd like to participate, it'd be great to have you put uh, whatever you're going to write, just so there's a heads up if you don't want to be too self-revealing in your seed. But uh, maybe a word, a prayer. You can write that in at some point. We'll gather those later. But let's go to the text here in John 12. If you want to turn there, uh, that's page 750 in your chair Bible. Let's, uh, let's go there together. John 12, uh, verse 20. Now there are some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. I like that line. So there's some Greeks who've come to Jerusalem to celebrate 
the Jewish feast of the Passover. It's, very, it's really important that we remember as we read these gospel stories of the, the final days of Jesus that there's two, there's two storylines going. There's the story of Israel as they celebrate the Passover, and Jesus is doing some strange things overlaying uh, his own story on top of that story. And so these Greeks have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the, the feast of the Passover, and understandably, they want to see the one who all the commotion is around. They've just seen him not ride on a war horse, but a donkey, a strange kind of coronation ceremony. They've, they've heard all kinds of rumors about him. He's just cleansed the temple. And by the way, the part that he cleansed was the, the court of the Gentiles, which was a massive statement that's saying, those who you think don't belong, the outsiders, those that you filled uh, their area with commerce, I'm overturning to create new areas of belonging, prophetic act. So there's a lot of commotion, and they rightfully say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And perhaps it's because Phil, Philip, uh, Phil, uh, it's perhaps <laughs> because Phil is, is, a, is a Greek name, um, that maybe they think, oh, we, could, we can approach him. We'll, we'll approach the guy with the Greek name. But their question is, it's more than wanting to gawk. They want to meet him. They want to understand what makes him tick. What is going on with this guy? Who is he and what is he up to? Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And so it travels down the chain, and here comes Jesus' response. Classic Jesus. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That so far is great. I'm sure they're like, yes, finally, we have been waiting for you to do obvious stuff, mighty stuff, powerful stuff, glorified, this sounds good. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground. What? Where is he going with this? What? Uh, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, oh no, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, he's speaking it like death as if it's a good thing. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What are you talking about? The request was to see Jesus, understand him, know what makes him tick. What's at the heart of what you're doing? And he's talking about seeds. He's being poetic and metaphorical. So in the coming days, Jesus would not only talk about the seed, not only talk about this image, this falling, this descending, this burying. He would demonstrate it as a moving, living, breathing, real image. Jesus would become the seed. Now, I like how uh, Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama says, Jesus Christ is not a quick answer. I've been chuckling over this all week. Jesus Christ is not a quick answer. If Jesus Christ is the answer, he is the answer in the way portrayed in crucifixion. Now, there's nothing immediately funny about that. But if, if he's the answer, which is the cliche, what, what the hell kind of answer is that? We want to know. We want to see what makes you tick. Let me answer. Unless a seed falls to the ground. What? He is, he is the answer in the way portrayed in crucifixion, then, then this answer really is a question, or at least it sets off all kinds of questions that demand discovery. If he's the answer portrayed in crucifixion, then there's more going on here than I know. 
And this is what we're confessing when we come to this part in the Apostles' Creed, which we've been slowly making our way through. So if you'd like to confess that this morning, here it is on the screen, and we can say these words once again. I believe in God, Father Almighty. So as we've talked every week, there's one, these, these little lines, these little words, and behind these little lines, there's big chunks of the story. There's, there's a lot standing behind these deceptively simple, small phrases. So I want to look at a bit of the story behind the line. Let's just go back so we can see it all at the top there, that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And so we're on Palm Sunday. We're not really doing a typical Palm Sunday uh, sermon this morning. We're kind of in Good Friday, and if that feels disorienting, then let's just use it because it's Holy Week, and um, that's what this week's all about. So let's get some of the story behind it. Um, this, let's go to Luke's Gospel, Luke 23, uh, verse 33 uh, to 49. I think the page number's up there, 737, if you'd like to follow along in the Bible. Luke 23. Now, I'm going to read here a, a fairly large chunk here so we get, we get context, and there's more nuance here than we can uh, get to, but let's, let's attend to Scripture. Verse 33, so when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, one on, on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. And when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. 
But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did you notice all the seeing language? Watching, seeing, looking. You've got thieves on either side, both representing two different responses to what they're seeing. Right? One's mocking Jesus, his powerlessness, a Messiah who can't even save himself. It's a joke. And the other recognized something else. He was seeing something else. And then the centurion, verse 47, says, the centurion seeing what had happened. So he's watching, he's taking it in, and he makes a confession. He says, surely this was a righteous man. And then, and then notice verse 49. All those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. What do you see when you see the cross? This is what we were talking about last week. What do we see? I want to just keep that question going. What do we see when we see the cross? I read this story this week of uh, Eli Weissel in one of the Nazi death camps uh, where a prisoner had escaped And so in retaliation, the Nazis took a young boy and hanged him publicly and forced everyone to watch this horrific spectacle. And so as this young boy is dangling on a rope in front of them, one man watching, seeing this event, curses bitterly, saying, where is God now? And a man standing beside him said, there on that rope, that's God. What do we see when we see the cross? Paul, in his letter, is trying to help people see the cross. We we looked at this last week. He, He talks about the message of the cross. Which again, if you've been around, that sounds like kind of normal, but that's very startling. I want you to really understand the message of the electric chair. I want you to become a community of the gallows, right? Uh, he's saying, I want you to know the message of the cross, that in these unthinkable events, God was doing something and saying something, that there is something here to hear. So what is that? I, I find it interesting. Just a little bit of background, if you permit me. We're pretty sure that there's more than two letters written to the church in Corinth. Um, first of all, in 1 Corinthians, Paul references an earlier letter. So it's likely what we have in Scripture, 1 Corinthians, is possibly a second letter. And then there's referencing in 2 Corinthians to a severe letter that he wrote, which we probably assume is 3 Corinthians. And our 2 Corinthians is likely then at least 4th. So why do I say that? Very likely, Paul's written four letters to the same group of people. And Paul's starting here with, with uh, 1 Corinthians, and all throughout his writings, he's talking about one thing, the cross, which is a summary word for Jesus' death and resurrection. So when you hear the cross, think of both. And so in Paul, by, by the second letter, or maybe 4th Corinthians, Corinthians, Paul is just pouring out all his energy in exasperation. He is putting everything he has, all his mental resources, in hopes that these people will see the cross. 
All manner of their issues, their finances, their sexuality, their rivalry, the conflict that's happening in the community. Paul's insisting you need to see this in light of the cross. In all of your struggles, it's related to the cross. And so this is what Paul is saying in so many words over and over and over. He says, you're placing yourself either above or beyond the cross that you've kind of graduated, that that's elementary, early stuff. So you've moved on from the cross. Or you're placing yourself above the cross. You're attempting to live above the fray. You're blind and privileged. You're you're wanting to live a a suffering-free existence. Rather, I'm inviting you to live in the cross. To live in the cross. And why does any of this matter? Why does our theology matter? Well, this is Paul's point. He's so worked up because their greatest deficiency was love. That's why he writes the famous 13th chapter in 1 Corinthians. It wasn't actually for your wedding, as nice as it was, I'm sure, when you had it there. But this was to a group of people who could not love. This was a group of people who thought they'd moved on from the cross and they were above the cross. And and Paul's like, no, you're missing it. You need a love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is cross-shaped love. It's not sentimental. So this is a people who just kept missing the cross. I, I was reading a lot of Fleming Rutledge this, this week, and she is, oh, man. I don't, I'm lost for words. I was going to say on fire, but lit? No. Kathy, Kathy, no? No, okay. Um, Forces within and without the early church, Fleming. Okay, she's 80 years old. I got to tell you about her. She's 80 years old, Episcopalian uh, priest, wrote a book on the crucifixion, probably the the greatest book on the crucifixion since John Stott's book. So if you're theology, like it's, it's incredible, incredible stuff. Okay. Nerd break over. So Fleming, back to Fleming. Forces within and without the early church exploited every opportunity to minimize or set aside the absurdly irreligious claim that a degrading state-sponsored execution had secured the salvation of the entire cosmos. Lots of forces wanting to minimize, to miss what is going on in the message of the cross. So this week, early in the week, I was walking down Kiefer Street in my neighborhood, walking my dog in the rain, earphones in, head down, way, way, way up in my head, stewing and thinking. And I hear my name called out. And, and so I kind of come out of this fog, and I look, and it's my friend Peter Legrand, who just drove by. I didn't see him. He saw me. He, pulled, he pulls over on the street. He waves me over to his van. I run across the street to his van. He ho- opens up the hatch. He goes... I got a van full of books. Do you want any? <laughs> and I said, amazing. Where did these books come from? He said, they were, they're my father's library. And uh, he said, I've been Mary condoing, which is, is amazing that that's a verb now. Uh, he says, I've been Mary condoing, and I don't need all of these. Would you like any of them? And my eyes immediately fall to a book that I've wanted for a long time, and I don't have. And it's Jürgen Moltmann's The Crucified God. I was like, oh. And so I I grabbed up the crucified God. And it was missing its dust jacket. And um, kind of banged up corners, a bit dusty. And 
Peter comments, he's like, oh, yeah, that will look good on the shelf. And I said, well, I've wanted it for a long time, more than just looking good on the shelf. I was like, eh, dust. Mm. So put it back, and instead I grab, um, it's, it was, it's about this thick, it's called The Theology of the Old Testament. Thanked Peter and walked down the street, and I, and I thought, hold on, what just happened there? Hold on. Hold on. I'm teaching this week on the crucified God. Everyone I'm reading is quoting Moltmann. I've really wanted this book for a long time. Someone I wasn't looking for but found me, pulled over on the road, offered me a free copy saying, would you like this? I looked at it, and because I didn't like how it looked, I passed it up and I kept an Old Testament of the, the-, uh, the theology of the Old Testament. There's a parable somewhere in there. I didn't like how it looked. Mm. Maybe next time. Yeah, how it felt. Yeah. The message of the cross is so easy to avoid, so easy to move beyond or above. It's hard to be in. Fleming again, she says, here is one of the most powerful arguments for the truth of the Christian faith. The human religious imagination could not have arrived at a notion so utterly foreign to generally accepted spiritual ideas as that of a crucified Messiah. You don't come up with this stuff. And it took the church a long time to come to terms with the cross. The church fathers forbade the cross, forbade it to be depicted in art until Constantine, who had a vision of the cross, but who also banned it as a method of execution. It wasn't until the 4th century that the cross became a symbol of faith. And as one author points out, it wasn't until crucifixion um, had, had uh, when it became common in art, it was because that any who had seen a real crucifixion had already died off. Like anyone who had first experience of it was like, that's, no, that's not art. And so, but now that symbols everywhere, on buildings, in jewelry, Steph Curry's doing it all the time when he's dropping threes. It's on the East Van Cross. The cross is everywhere. So what's the message? What's the Paschal mystery? What might any of this mean even in this week? Paul, again, 1 Corinthians 15. I want to read that to you. Just notice what he's doing. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you. What do you think he's going to go on about again? I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He's doing it again. This is the most important thing he's insisting on. And so Christians then have come to confess that Jesus' death was the turning point of history. But the way the New Testament talks about this turning point talks about it in a whole bunch of different ways and uses a whole bunch of different images. Uh, Here's just a quick list. Metaphors. So throughout church history, the church has understood the death of Jesus through a variety of different pictures, sometimes called atonement theories. And the reason there are so many metaphors is because Scripture itself uses so many pictures and metaphors and images. 
So at the heart of it, here it is, at the heart of it, the confession is that in the cross, the ugliest thing, the worst thing, God was doing something in the cross. That in the cross, that God died for our sins in Jesus Christ and that God really did restore relationships in every direction. That God really did redemptively restore relationships between us and God, us and ourselves, us and each other, and us and creation. But what does any of this mean? I want to say this morning that the cross is more like a, a sacred labyrinth than a drive through window where we get sacred snacks. It's a labyrinth. You take time. You, don't just, you, can't, just go, you can't just do pass-throughs. Thank you, got it, out, Let's snack on something. The cross is a mystery. You've got to take time with it. Or one of my favorite images is a multi-sided diamond. You've just got to keep turning it. There's so many sides. So let's just name a few of the sides here. So we, so we might have a fuller picture when we confess that we believe that Jesus was crucified and that he died. What are we saying? We're saying this and more. We're saying on the cross, Jesus became the sacrifice to end sacrifices. We're saying that on the cross, Jesus became the scapegoat, the Lamb of God, who saves us from the foundational sin of scapegoating. On the cross, Jesus took the blame to save us from blaming. On the cross, we send our sins into Jesus, and he forgave us. On the cross, Jesus died not only for us, but in our place. On the cross, Jesus shamed the principalities and powers of sacrificial religion and violent power. On the cross, Jesus judges sin, casts out Satan, and refounds the world. On the cross, Jesus gives the world a new organizing principle, love. And on the cross, Jesus gives the world a new telos, peace. On the cross, we discover a God who shapes the world not by coercion, but by love. And on the cross, Jesus achieves solidarity with all who suffer. I'm still going here. I'm not, not close to being done. On the cross, Jesus reveals a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. On the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. On the cross, Jesus doesn't save us from the Father. He shows us what God the Father is like. On the cross, Jesus tramples down death by death. On the cross, Jesus joins humanity in death that we might join him in resurrection. And on the cross, in his death and resurrection, Jesus starts a whole new world, the world of a new creation. And on, and on, and on, and on. There's just too much. There's too much here. Each line, that would be a lifetime spent in discovery. Luke 23, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. I think at first that's the only appropriate response, is to behold, to gaze, to look again, to wonder. I'm thankful that even though I missed the crucified God on offer by Peter Legrand, there's many other offers of coming to understand. This is why we need uh, Holy Weeks every year. We need another pass, another go, to gaze upon this mysterious beauty of the cruciform until I see the beauty of God take the form of a crucified man. So let's just do a little bit of gazing, a little bit of looking now. I've got five images here, five different paintings. 
I'm going to put up five different paintings. Uh, warning that the fourth image has a little bit of nudity in it. Um, my wife wanted me to warn you, so just letting you know. Okay, so we'll just, we'll just take these images in. I won't comment on them. Take a few seconds on each. So in many ways, the invitation is, is the first one that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, called out, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Where it started is where it ends, and then we're invited to behold, to look, to gaze. So whatever your holy week looks like, can I encourage you to carve out, to make some room, as Mary Oliver says, for the unimaginable. Make some room, carve out some space to behold to look and to look again, to not move beyond or above, but to move in to the cross. So the, the creed continues. Jesus was crucified, died, and he was buried, which really is the lowest point in the whole creed. That's the lowest of the low. That's when all the air goes out. That's the emotion in this room right now. <sighs> buried. This is the point where the seed gets pushed into the soil, hidden, dark. But it's the next part that's caused a lot of problems for many people, that Jesus descended into hell. I don't know if that's caught your, caught your ear when we've said it on some of these Sundays or if, if you've wondered. I've always wondered about that line. Why is that in there? And, and in fact, it's been so controversial that some churches, some Christians edit out that line. Let's just take it out. Uh, we don't know what to do with that, so let's got cut and paste now. So let's just cut it out of there. I think some of the some of the confusion is around the word hell. So very quickly, the English word hell is misleading um, because in Hebrew the word was Sheol, which you may have heard of, and then in Greek it was Hades, and both of those refer uh, maybe the, the the phrase would be like the realm of the dead. So the idea that uh, there was, yeah, the world of the dead. And so there's places in the New Testament, we won't go into deep 
deep dives here, but I'll just list them here, where it talks about Jesus' death as a descent into the world of the dead. So when we hear this, we're thinking Hades or Sheol. So when he ascended on high, Paul says in Ephesians, he made captivity itself captive after having first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Uh, Elsewhere, it talks about um, that Christ's word is proclaimed among the dead. His name is confessed under the earth among the dead. And so early on, Christians came to believe that on Holy Saturday, that day right in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, the day between that Christ descends into the realm of the dead to set free the spirits in prison. That's First Peter. So there's a number of places. If you want to look, uh, look it up, you can. But Jesus descends in a way into prison, and it's like, a get-out-of-jail-free moment, that Jesus descends right into the heart of death and detonates life. And so I want to look at a couple of images then of how might we kind of understand. Here's, here's one. This is a classic one. Uh, the light of the world. Maybe you've seen this one. Jesus is standing outside, and he is holding a lantern, and he's knocking. And he's ready to come in, but here's the hitch. This door only has a doorknob on the inside. There's only one doorknob, and it's on the inside, which means Jesus can't actually enter unless the person on the other side first unlocks the door. So the message, you could say, the subtext of this painting is God can't help unless we let him in. And there have been so many bad sermons off of this bad theology. So many bad pieces of artwork off of this bad theology because that's not the story. That's certainly not the God Jesus reveals. This is a God who runs down the road to embrace his son before he's apologized. He says, I, I, I don't care. I, ju- I just want you back. That, that's the God Jesus reveals. Not one who's impotently standing on the other side of the door saying, I'm waiting for you to make the first move. If you had a little more faith, then she might have been healed. So many bad stories. And when we confess this in the creed, it's at the lowest of the low. It's at the point where I cannot actually open the door. It's when I'm paralyzed by fear and depression and overcome by darkness. When I am under the weight of my sin or the sin of somebody else's. It's in that place that God busts in, that Jesus descends and says, yeah, no, we're going to have a little bit of light going on up in here. doesn't talk like that. That's just me trying to be relevant. (laughs) Not that either. Um, It's just nerves. Okay. The Eastern Orthodox have a different image. This is called the hell harrower. It's an icon uh, about the harrowing of hell that shows Jesus' triumph triumphant over death. In most of the icons, the doors of death are busted off their hinges, and he's standing on them. There's chains and locks. You can see in the abyss, in the black part, there's all kinds of chains and, and locks that are busted, and he's standing over it all. And in every icon, he's, he, he, there's two old people. Like, who, are, who are the older folks? Well, that's Adam and Eve. And every time he's got them by the wrists, and every time they look surprised, which is just utterly perfect. Why? Because they didn't ask for it. Because they didn't add for it. They didn't add to it. 
They didn't know it was coming because it was by grace. He comes in, he steps in and grabs them by the, the wrists. So when we confess this part of the creed that Jesus descended into hell, we're confessing that because the Son of God has fully taken on the nature of a human being. He allows our fallen nature to drag him all the way down. And he descends right into the heart of the abyss of the human condition. He traces our plight all the way down to the root. Oh boy, are we trying to up earth a whole bunch of roots, are we not these days? Roots of systemic injustice and racism. Roots of addiction. Roots where I just feel so stuck. Jesus descends all the way down to the root of confessing and takes hold of us at that point and says, you'll be coming up with me. Because he shares our nature, he is able to fall all the way into our death. And because he also shares the nature of God, he is able to rise all the way up with us in tow, coming along for the ride. There's another image. Jesus descends all the way down. He descends into the place of death. He descends into our private hells. And says, that's going to be the point of newness right there. Just thinking of a story while we were praying this morning. Uh, when I was in grade 10, I moved my, my bedroom from the top floor where the whole family lived to the unfinished basement. I mean, it was finished with full wood paneling, which every, I think, Canadian prairie home in the 70s and 80s had. So had the full wood paneling and the hard concrete. And there was a bedroom with carpet in it. And so that's where I moved because it was easy to sneak out at night, sneak out through the little windows and do whatever I wanted in the dark. So that was grade 10. Over the next few years, my relationship with my dad uh, froze, done, cold. I had no idea that he'd been going to counseling because of me. So our relationship was, it was just horrible. I'd rarely be home, and when I did come home, I'd time my uh, return home when no one was there to do a couple things, to change, because it'd been two days, three maybe, you know, hygienic teenager, and um, to change, and then also to steal money out of the business safe, because I knew the combination. So I'd do those kinds of things, I'd sneak home, and I remember this one day, I snuck home, and I was in the basement, and I heard the back door open up, and I just froze. I, didn't, I did not want him to know I was down here. And I heard steps walk down the hallway across the kitchen, come to the basement door, and he opened up the basement, and he said my name. Lance? And I had a moment there where I was going to decide whether I'd respond or not. Stay hiding in the shadows, stay in the basement, or come out to be met. I didn't think, I just responded. And so I came and I stood at the, the, the bottom of the stairs. My dad's a big Scandinavian hulking man. And I watched this large, to me, very powerful man walk down the steps. And he got about halfway, he sat down. And I didn't know what he was doing. I couldn't interpret, I couldn't see what was happening. And so I, I couldn't see, but I could hear. And I heard weeping. I heard weeping like a, like a wounded animal, like a little boy, like embarrassing types of crying. 
and his big broad shoulders were hunched over and they were just rising and falling like pump jacks, just drilling down into grief. And he said, Lance, Lance, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I just don't know what to do. This was my father, utterly defeated by my rebellion, hard-heartedness, indifference, contempt. For him, defeated, weak. So he makes the move of dissent and renders himself foolish in front of me. And that's the moment where I, I attribute to a thaw happening in me, at least the start of a thaw, seeing my dad in his weakness descend to me for the sake of relationship. This is what we're confessing in the creed. There is a God who's not all about saying, hey, when you're ready, start making the climb. Hope you can ascend the mountain. This is a God of descent, not summoning ascent. It's a God of ascent in Christ. Descent. Okay. That wasn't in the notes, and the notes are already too long, so let's land this. So in the creed, we're tracing the Pascal mystery, the Paschal mystery. Jesus is, we're, we're tracing descent. And in a couple days, we're going to start tracing ascent. Descent and ascent. Death and resurrection. Unless a seed falls. So what Jesus says, what we can't have the understanding to grasp, he then demonstrates. And Paschal, just, that's the Greek word for Passover. And so we're saying that the mystery present in Christ is the same mystery present in the Exodus story. The people of God move from an old life of slavery into a new life of relationship. And the Paschal mystery is how everything works. I know that sounds like a bold claim, but it's how everything works. When we make the natural growth, say from childhood to adolescence, we're experiencing the Paschal mystery. We let go of an old life of being a child. And we embrace a new life, a greater life of being an adolescent. We experience the Paschal mystery when someone close to us dies. We go through that mystery. We let go of our old life with that person. And we take hold of a new life that God will bring us. I was reading this week, even, take for instance, two hydrogen atoms that come into contact with an oxygen atom. What happens? Paschal mystery. Atoms open up their electron orbits, become vulnerable to each other, die to their singleness, and become something greater than they ever were before. What do they become? They become water, which brings even more life. The Paschal mystery, of course, is the way of the seed. And so, uh, next slide here. If we were just to kind of outline the Paschal mystery in the way of Jesus, we see it in his death. On Good Friday, we see it in his burial on Holy Saturday. We see it in resurrection on Easter Sunday. We see it in the readjustment phase of the 40 days following uh, resurrection. We see it in letting go in the ascension and then receiving the new spirit in Pentecost. And so to enter that Paschal mystery, as, as we come into this week, here are just a few quick things of what it might mean to not only see and observe this, but to participate and to live into it. So Good Friday, to name your deaths. All kinds of deaths. The death of a job, 
death of relationship, maybe the death of a healthy body, the death of the honeymoon phase, whether it's a relationship or your time in your job, the death of a certain idea of God. It could also include the death of cynicism. It could be the death of a blindness that comes with certain kinds of privilege. There's all kinds of deaths to name. And we enter in that liminal space of Holy Saturday where we're invited to grieve, to be angry, experience disorientation. And then in Resurrection Sunday, to claim our births, to claim our births, the inbreaking of a new relationship, the unexpected arrival. Readjustment. I love that this is included. And to grieve what's lost and adjust to the new reality. The new arrives, but it's going to take some time to get used to. It's going to take some time to let go of the old. And then ascension, letting go, not clinging to it. Finally, letting go of the old thing. And lastly, receiving the Spirit, receiving the new Spirit to live a new life. One author says, we face many deaths within our lives, and the choice is ours as to whether those deaths will be terminal, snuffing out life and spirit, or whether they will be paschal, opening us to new life and new spirit. Grieving is the key to the latter. So may we grieve well this week as we name our deaths and risk Risk Paschal mystery being at the heart of all things. One author says, to believe in resurrection is to trust in dying. So in a few moments, we're going to take those seed cards and to, to name what needs to go in the ground. Name something as we get ready to move towards the cross again. As we get ready to gaze and watch and look again. We, we want to do all of that, but we also want to participate participate. This is, I think, why the Apostle Paul says this. Uh, do we have it up there? Philippians? Maybe I didn't put it up there. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. So one quick story, and then we're going to wrap it up here. I, I was blown away. This is, this is Paschal mystery in action. This is someone who's risking death and burial and resurrection. This is Peter Tabachi. There's a picture of him here. I don't know if you've heard of Peter Tabachi. 36-year-old Kenyan teacher who just won uh, the Global Teacher Prize. And he teaches in a rural school uh, where he spends 80% of his income on the community and on the school. That's what he does, 80% of his salary. Uh, Peter is a Franciscan brother who teaches math and silence, science, not silence. <laughs> math and science in the village of Pwani. And though all of his students are from impoverished families, Peter's students are excelling under, under his teaching. And one team of students has qualified to compete this year at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair in Arizona. So he's bringing these students all over the world to compete in these science fairs. So there's the, the great global teacher prize, and he wins it. One million dollars. And he guess what he's going to do with it? Yeah, he's going to sew it back into his community, spend it on the school. And listen to what he says. Listen to how he talks about his people and the country. He says, it's morning in Africa. The day is young. 
and there is a blank page waiting to be written. Now, that is, that is a guy who gets the Paschal mystery. Sowing, daily dying, daily dying in his income and his salary, 80%, practicing the way of Jesus, giving it away, and with hope, seeing Africa. He has a vision not just for Kenya, but for Africa. That's dying and rising. That's the way of the seed. So, Jesus says, unless a seed falls to the ground, it bears alone. It bears alone. But if, if it falls, if, if, it, if it risks falling and death and burial, look out. There's more newness than you can contain. A seed's only chance is to make the fall. If it does not die, you don't get any resurrection. That might be a word for some of us. We've wanted resurrection, but we haven't won what happens before it. Trust in resurrection is a trust in dying. You don't plant flowers. You plant seeds that die, and then you get flowers. It's always dirt and then blooms. So it needs to go in the dirt. That's what we can work out here in this time of response. You've got your pieces of paper. If you want to just keep them, you can. If you want to bring them to the prayers of the people over there, you can. We'll gather them, and we'll put them up on the wall as uh, just kind of a little installation, and then we'll read some of them out. We won't read them all, but we'll read some of them. Friends, I hope you have a great Paschal Mystery. I hope you just have, I, it's, I hope you have the best Good Friday and Easter Sunday yet. So the blessing of Christ as you risk it all once again. What a privilege to do this. Let's come to the table and remind ourselves of the gospel. Gospel is the good news that God our Father...